house go boom. Yeah. Yeah, that's um <laughs> that's one way to start it. House um, go boom. Well also podcasts go boom, because we have a, we, we need to introduce our guests, I guess, first just so he can interact with us and not feel like this awkward outsider until we introduce him. Uh we're we're gonna welcome uh the second most important discipline in the church, the great canon lawyer, Ed Condon from the Pillar. Welcome, Ed. Thank you for having me. It's great having you on. We, we're we're going to talk about some canon law stuff here in a bit. But uh, yeah, so for those who don't haven't seen me on the Twitters talking about this, so Sunday night, I'm sitting at home about 8.20 at night. I'm on my computer. I'm on Discord talking to a couple friends and uh, about to eat dinner, a late dinner. And then I hear this loud boom and feel this massive rumble of my rectory. My rectory is about three minutes away from the church, three-minute drive from the church. And I'm like, what was that? Like, was that lightning? Then I actually said, then I'm like, was that a bomb? And I said a quick act of contrition <laughs> because who knows what's going on in the world these days. You just never, you're just like a little on edge. And so I'm scrolling through Twitter, trying to figure out what's going on. And then it says explosion near the church on McCleary. And I'm like, that's my church. There's only one church on McCleary. That's me. So I got in my car and I drove to the church. And a house that's adjacent to our cemetery went boom. Yeah, it exploded. It, it lit- This is not an exaggeration, but it literally, people, it literally exploded. It was a gas line explosion. Now, it was an empty house, thanks be to God. Only two people were taken to the hospital with minor injuries who are neighbors. But about a quarter of our cemetery is still covered in debris. And and the debris went actually even further, but really a quarter of it. And so the fence is gone. Actually, amazingly, only one of the gravestones looks like has been broken. Mm. Um, minor damage to the church. Not only one small window at the front is broken. I got a couple hanging lamp uh, light fixtures right now because the chains fell off from the explosion. Um, you know, nothing too big, but it was like when you feel that three minutes away, like a couple kilometers away, or you know, one and a half miles for the Americans. Thank you. Um, um, when you can feel it that far away, you're surprised when you walk into your church, you see pretty much everything is still standing. <laughs> That's good. See, this is adding to my list of the more extravagant things that they didn't tell you about in seminary. Right. Um, <laughs> the list goes as, as forward. What to do when someone uh, defecates in your church. Yep. And that's, uh, well, that's definitely every priest needs to learn eventually. Yeah, yeah. so there's that's one. Um, what to do when the old men start hitting on you uh, in your parish. Whoa. Um, has that not happened to you? It's happened nope. to me and several oh, no. of my priest friends. Oh, no. Uh, and then uh, what happens when the house blows up next to your church? These are, these are things that <laughs> would make a very interesting uh, seminary class. Kind of a grab bag of things I didn't expect. What does Ken Law have to say about house explosions near cemeteries, Ed? Um, not a great deal. Hmm. Um, sounds like sounds like a fault in uh, canon law. Well, I do, canon law would probably have a lot to say, depending on how much damage was done and what money you have available to fix it. You will probably, if you've got to spend some money to get things looking right again, there's probably going to be some arguments about which bank accounts you're allowed to use. There you That's go. fair. <laughs> Although in the end, thankfully, I think I, if. One of the, either the gas company or the house's insurance is probably going to pay for all this, which I sure will for the insurance companies are known for poning right up. They... Well, but he, well, uh, here's the thing insurance in Canada is not as bad as it is in the states because we're not capitalists, we're socialists, 
we're socialist tyranny, as everyone knows. And mm-hmm. so uh, we're communists really up here, as everyone knows from the news. Um, no matter how uh, hard those truckers try to bring down the country, you're going to stay a strong Soviet nation. And I appreciate right. that. That's right. <laughs> There's a reason the liberals have a red for their color, you know. Um, <laughs> but um it's actually not too bad. It, 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 like really, in all, although it's been like literally two days of just insurance and insurance and insurance, which is again not exactly how you want to spend your days. But that was a new one. That is a new one. Yeah, yeah. I don't even know what to say with that. You know what to say. Uh, welcome to Clerically Speaking. There you go. I'm Father Harrison. I'm Father Anthony. Am and, I supposed to say I'm yeah, and, Ed and, Condon yes. from The Pillar? Yes, good, Ed Condon. Good. Good. You have to be. Look, you have to go easy with me. I, I'm not. I'm. I'm always confused in a new ecclesiastical setting when the laity are allowed to speak. I, yes, that's no, fair. I don't want to give the wrong responses at the wrong time. I feel like I'm basically using a completely different missile here. So I, you know. <laughs> You're breathing you different. Do, you're breathing different ecclesial air right now. Exactly. If you could do the decent presbyteral thing and nod patronizingly when I'm supposed to say something, that would be great. Yes. Possibly raise your hand in that weird way that parish cantors do. Oh no. Know, oh yeah, we do that. Sort of. I call it the Nancy Pelosi hand, where it just sort of wanders up of its own accord. And, you know. <laughs> no, my favorite is when they kind of like they raise both hands in like a oh. gesture and just kind of move mm. around a little bit. Like, there like you go. The, where they're like the Pope essentially at that point. It's yeah. like I'm gonna I'm like the Pope. Hey, hey, yeah, yeah, hey, hey, yes, greet me. Yes, I'm the new Pope. Hey, I greet me. So I've, we are recording yes. on the day of ashes, Ash Wednesday, yes. the beginning yes. of Lent. Yes. And this is the weirdest Ash Wednesday I've ever had because it is my day off. I am not doing anything, nor am I getting ashes on this day. How did and you I, how did you score that? I didn't. I didn't do anything. Like literally, I looked at the calendar. And the other priests are taking all the stuff. And that was it. So I'm at my parents' house uh, using my parents' incredibly old Mac. I think it's his, it's it's at least 15 years old, I think. Uh, <laughs> but hopefully everything sounds all right anyway. If you hear some noises in the background, it's because uh, Grandpa is now taking care of producer Indiana. Uh, she's taking a nap right now, which is good. But if you hear a older gentleman making baby sounds, it's because my dad becomes ridiculous around my little niece he becomes this big old softy and it still confuses nice. my brain and, and people can't see this right now but but the way the camera is with father anthony he looks like he's like in a hostage video almost yes <laughs> it's <laughs> quite it's quite intense <laughs> i'm very frustrated with technology today but it is okay it's okay it's part of my uh penance today um so do you just then just like I mean, maybe I shouldn't be outing on this, but like, do you just say mass on your own then, or like, just like, how does this today, work? Today I'm not. Today okay. I'm not mass. Uh, sometimes I say mass on my day off. Sometimes I don't. Gotcha. Gotcha. But uh, I just yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Huh. I was like, man, like, how did? Yeah. I was like, I was wondering about that because I know Wednesday is your day off, so I'm like, oh, they must have moved it for this week because mm. Ash Wednesday, like, they got it. That's actually you. one of the really nice things. Like all of us are very protective of each other's day off more so than we are of our own. Uh, I actually did try to work today because uh, we were doing stuff with the funeral and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, I can take this mass, this mass. And they're both like, no, go away. I'm like, okay, cool. Cool. That works for me. So uh, it's, it's a good group of guys. Cool. How are you doing, Ed? Uh, I'm doing fine. It's 
it's not an ordinary Wednesday for me, but you know, it's uh, this is a nice break from the. I'm having an unusual working day because I went to I went to mass at midday and um, tried to get some stuff done. I've spent the morning translating a very long winded Italian legal document, which took up most of my day, and uh, it's of questionable benefit to other people. Now that I've done it, I I had hoped that there would be some punchy fireworks in there, and it's all very very interesting. I I now have to find a way of making people understand how interesting it is. So that'll be what I do this evening. But you know, yeah, this is this is a nice break in my working day. Nice, nice. And I see. I was saying to you before we recorded. I see you've gone the North American way of receiving ashes. Yes, yes, they are definitely smudging them in my local parish. None of the sprinkling, none of the Roman sprinkling. Which you know, I understand. People, um, people like other people to know they've got the ashes. You do the sprinkling, <laughs> and you know, the, the, frankly, you how do you trump it before you? If I know you, you've got on the head, no one but how, your father. How do you go directly it? against? Yeah, exactly. How do you go directly yeah. against the the gospel passage of yeah. and your father who sees in secret will yeah. reward you? No one right, God like, would know if I got it sprinkled on the top of my head. And, you know, well, what's the point? Plus, then you'd have to shower maybe because maybe the priest put too much, you know, ashes in your hair. Uh, one of my favorite things was it's a memory I have uh, from a minor seminary. I was a sacristan at my seminary. And it was kind of in the afternoon and I was going to sacristy to clean some stuff up. And I see a seminarian looking in the mirror there, reapplying his own ashes because he had uh, taken a nap and they had fallen off and he was going to university. So he was reapplying the ashes <laughs> as I walked in. I was like, really, dude? Almost like uh, makeup, you know, it's like got to mm -hmm. touch up, you know, got to do a little touch up. Yeah, this is why we all need formation. <laughs> Another thing, I was uh, <laughs> getting my hairs cut uh, last night and uh, the lady who cuts my hair, lovely lady, she's been cutting my hair since I've been like eight years old. And um, she's uh, not nominational, but good natured. And she was like, aren't you going to get ashes? I'm like, no, you don't actually have to. It's not like mm -hmm. an obligation to get ashes. And she was like, wow, I never knew that. And why do we even do that? It's like, well, um, uh, you guys do that because we did it first. Uh, yeah. And everyone else wants to copy off us because we've been around a little bit longer. Uh, mm -hmm. So, mm. and it's, it's, so this is the interesting thing. And Catholics treat Ash Wednesday and Good Friday like holy days of obligation. Mm-hmm. Even and a lot of people will come, even though they won't come on Sundays ever. They'll come, and some of them might not even come for Easter, but they'll come for Good Friday, which is not even a mass, and they'll come for Ash Wednesday. Like it is one of the weirdest things, and I've I've been scratching my head trying to understand Catholics, like the 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 kind of you know the Catholic who made it pretty much doesn't go to church. They love coming for Ash Wednesday, Good Friday, but they're just non-existent for the rest of it. And I've always scratched my head at this one. It's the ultimate expression of Catholic cultural guilt. What's what's not to understand? I mean, I'm surprised that you have a day off, Father Anthony. I would have thought that the guy with the day off has to be on door duty because at least most of the guys I know that are pastors, you get people ringing the door. Like they haven't made it to any of the three parish masses, but I, I need to get the ashes. Ashes, Father. right. Yes. Uh, so we we actually have four today. Four. <laughs> uh, and I mean, it is. Uh, so I don't want to get too cynical because it's very easy to get cynical. About I don't think it's, I don't think saying that there's a good developed sense of Catholic guilt in people is cynical. I, I think that's praiseworthy. It's actually oh, quite no. Lenten. It's quite Lenten. Yeah. No, I was prefacing my own comments, not yours. Oh, okay. I would never I would never accuse you, Ed Condon, of being cynical. No. <laughs> <laughs> Ed is the most hopeful person you'll ever meet. You know, just the guy who's cheery, never thinks anything's wrong with the world and just thinks everything. Everything in the church is great. 
Look, the, the extent to which I happen to believe everything is wrong in the world just underscores how hopeful I truly am that I think that it could, you know, that God can do something with all of this. This it, is true. I agree. <laughs> Sorry, uh, we, cut, we cut Anthony off there. I, I was, you know, I was talking to the lady who cuts my hair uh, and thinking about this. It's this weird thing where you can both, by getting ashes on Ash Wednesday, you can both witness to your Christian faith without any sacrifice because <laughs> everyone else is also getting ashes. So it's this interesting thing where like this tiny bit of desire you have in your heart to <laughs> witness that you're a Christian, it's the safest time to do it. And uh, I think there's, there's an appeal in that. And I do, I do like, I am glad that people get ashes um, because it does show that there's something there. I'm not quite sure what it is, but there's something there. I think that's good. Uh, but I remember at Duquesne University, once again, when I was a seminarian, they were giving out ashes at like every building. Like you want just to drive by the, the library and get some ashes? Absolutely. Um, and it's it's odd. It's I've, it's odd, it but is. it's... It's also, it's, it's only only Catholics can do this. No, a bunch of other denominations do well, it no, too. But, yeah. I, but, I, but I mean, like, I mean, like only the Catholics will show up for the weird reasons like this. Like it, it, it's, it's, it's 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 a weird twisting of it's not really even a weird twisting it's a it's a natural expression of the catholic logic and the catholic ethos for those who don't yeah so i agree with you i think like yeah there's that's actually a good point now because here's a good sacramental is the thing yeah we 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 get it that the world is physical and the spiritual world is also physical and you know we want the stuff we want the holy water we want the ashes we want the mm -hmm. you know the stuff you can put in your pocket and kill vampires with that's mm -hmm. that's fundamentally mm -hmm. what's great about being catholic yeah it is. so it because is. It, so it's so because this is the thing so i was the same before we recording so in our diocese the bishops instructed us to do the sprinkling on the head to go the roman way mm -hmm. which I actually really like it. I, 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 there's something about it, like, cause you're doing it on the crown of the head, which is where you traditionally would be anointed with chrism. So there's that connection with your baptism and death and resurrection and all those things. And I, I really kind of have come to appreciate that. And um, I was actually really glad. And so, and because of COVID, it was like one of these weird things. Cause like, I know one of our priests in our diocese tried it a few years ago and people just like revolted against him. But now because of COVID, everyone's kind of understanding and no one, re like I said, listen, you don't have to receive it on your head. If you don't want to, then just don't receive it. it. It's not the end of the world if you don't receive ashes. You know, I have people saying, well, do I have to go to confession before receiving ashes? Nope. I mean, you can. You should have said Obviously, yes. You should, you should have lied. <laughs> yes. Then I have to, go to, have to go to confession before receiving ashes. Does anyone ask that question about going to receive the Eucharist? Well, this is the, this is the thing. It's like, oh, yeah, I know. It's like, this is where I'm just like, like. Like, come on! Like, I'm, I'm sorry, so I'm having close. a bit of an aneurysm. So close, <laughs> so far away. It's right. Kind of so, where we're at. <laughs> but yeah, so this is the first time I've ever done the sprinkling on the head. I really liked it. There was, something, you know, there's something about the bat. Even like the people bowing their head to receive the ashes. There's that sign of humility there, and it seemed the more proper way. And I, so I, I think I'm never going to go away from the Roman way in the future. I think we should just be really traditional with uh, receiving ashes and just receive on the tongue like a good Catholic should. <laughs> I think that would be way more penitential. <laughs> I think that's just better. <laughs> but I'm, I'm a bit of a traditionalist, so what can I say? Sorry. <laughs> That way, no one's going to abuse the ashes. You're not worried about them, you know, uh, wiping off the ashes later or reapplying ashes. Like and what? really, if you're a seminarian who's got to touch up his ashes before going to school, you really got to want it. Yeah, that's true. 
Oh Screw my gosh. I wonder if you can go to the parish office and just ask to see the priest for a minute just so you can get some ashes. Sorry. Sorry. Low blow. Low blow. Anyways, um anyways, let's we have we have a special segment today. Yeah. Cano- canonical emergencies. Canonical emergencies. Canon <laughs> Law Emergency. I really hope there's gonna be a great bumper for this. Uh I'm sure that producer Nick will put a lot of time and a lot of effort <laughs> to make this bumper. Yeah. Uh, it's that, going to because be because, as Ed easy. knows, when you have a newborn child, you have all the time in the world. Right. 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 You don't, you don't have to worry about any, you, you know, just, yeah, you just, you have, you are a free man when you have a child. It's true. Cause, right? you know, for the first time, sometimes in your entire marriage, your wife is occupied. <laughs> Oh my gosh okay um how am i this happy on ash wednesday very weird anyways okay so our first uh canonical emergency wait do i, I need want, to be, I, do i need to be wearing my beretta for this is do you, you have i mean you could i mean it, we're not going to be posting the video but oh, okay well then but, I'll, I'll it's up in my why office not? Oh, okay I, I don't need to get my judging hat if, oh, okay if we're not gonna <laughs> if we're not on camera that's fine um all right so i bothers this is ray if that's your real name. I just had an idea. I'm very excited that I'm very excited about. My plan is on Ash Wednesday to shave my beard back to just a mustache or all of Lent or for all of Lent, I'm going to call it stash Wednesday. My wife is currently arguing that this is sacrilegious and not respectful. I'm arguing that this is a manly and mirthful Christian witness and I would love your input. Thanks guys. Canonical take. Um, it's certainly not sacrilegious. Okay. Uh, I there if you if you want to get biblical for a minute, um, a proper sign of humiliation morning would be to shave your beard. Um, and I can think of few things that would attract scorn and opprobrium in this world than deliberately wearing mustaches. Um, so in this case, I think this is a genuine mortification of the flesh. I mean, as long as the guy isn't going to go around telling everyone, this is a mustache that I have willingly imposed on myself for the purposes of attracting criticism and mortification, which I'm offering for the kingdom, in which case, you know, see the gospel of the day. Um, but no, if he's if he's accepting the humiliation uh, as a genuine act of piety, I'd say totally valid. What about the idea of calling it Stash Wednesday? Oh, I'm fully in favor. <laughs> see, that's the difficult thing. So you want to keep your penances as hidden as possible. Mm-hmm. And how can you resist the opportunity to explain why you've done what you've done and not say, well, of course I shaved my beard. It's stash Wednesday. That would be a very difficult thing for me to do. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the sort of thing you can talk about during Eastertide. Mm -hmm. You can refer back Mm -hmm. to it and say, yes, this is true. This is true. And I mean, listen, we also have the tradition of St. Philip Neri. Yes. Who would like shave half his beard. Shave half his beard. He would, he also, as, as I've heard it told you, he would also make a point of breaking wind loudly in front of ladies of dignity so that they wouldn't <laughs> think too highly of him. I love that guy. He did not like to be taken seriously, and I can respect that. I love that guy. He's so great. Um, yeah, okay. So there's no canonical impediments to any of his. No, his it's moves. not canonically prohibited to grow mustaches. That is, you are allowed to do that. What about if he was in holy orders and it was the 1917 code, would he have to be clean shaven? So this is actually an interesting thing. Um, <laughs> there are, it's as to the best of my knowledge, it's always been particular law that has mandated priests in the Latin church 
be clean shaven, that this is something that's done in the diocese by diocese, or in the case of the United States, I think it was, it may even have been one of the Baltimore councils that, that touched on this. I, I, I don't want to assert that as fact, but I have a theory. I know that, I know that the, I think third Baltimore mandated clerical dress um, in the US and said, you know, you can wear a black suit and stuff like that, um, and cassocks and all that sort of thing. So you you do get that in particular law, although it's interesting, the custom of clean-shaven clerics is something that ebbs and flows in the church. I mean, in the early church, it was considered appalling, the idea that you would have a, a shaven priest. This would be considered unmanly, and Painter is the sort of person who would, in the in the language of the Council of Elvira and its canons, be the sort of person who consorted with hairdressers, which was a canonical <laughs> crime. Um you 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 shouldn't do that and and then it became um in the latin church because obviously eastern priests have always been very hair suit and uh encouraged to grow facial hair when the mood takes them um it it became a thing in the latin church to be clean shaven as a sign of celibacy hmm. that it was deliberately appropriate it's like well yes it is in some senses unmanly or unmasculine to be clean shaven but it is because we are you know essentially holding ourselves out as virgins for the kingdom it was an outward sign of um a priest's celibate state and uh there was the last bearded pope was i think sixtus the fifth and he he said that he would be the last pope of his name because no pope would ever choose the name sixtus sextus um but he also was the last bearded pope and there was another one they nearly elected i think an eastern pope uh, about three guys after Sixtus, I think. And it was widely rumored and sort of became the lore of the Vatican that the reason he didn't win wasn't because people didn't want him, they didn't think he'd do a good job, but they were worried that they'd have a bearded pope and that would look weird. And, you know, oh. and then and then apparently by the next conclave, he'd made it quietly known that if elected, he would shave, but it was too little too late. <laughs> so what you're saying, if I don't want to become pope, I need to have a beard. Uh, I don't know that that'll get you out of jail necessarily, but it's one way of signaling that you don't consider yourself Papa Billy would be to grow a giant beard. Yes. So this People is why would... Arch, this is why Bishop Lefebvre always had a, had a beard. Did he? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There are a lot of pictures of him with a beard. Hmm. So this, so, this, so brings tratty, mind, eh? this brings to mind a, a controversy that occurred in my seminary. I'm sharing a lot of seminary stories where a lot of the guys, because, um, as a way of dying to self in a performative action, wanted to shave their heads. So we had like three guys shave their heads. They tried very hard to get me to shave my head. Of course, I did not give in to such ridiculousness. Uh, but uh, our ordinary at the time, uh, blissfully unaware of the connotations of this phrase, started referring to them as skinheads and uh, accidentally did oh so my gosh. in a homily. And we had to gently pull him aside and let him know of the connotation in which case he became very anti-shaving of the head and, for, and forbid our guys from doing that. It's like, grow See, your hair back out. Iffy when guys do that because, you know, there's always this sort of lingering suspicion that they think they look badass yeah. if they shave their heads. <laughs> and so I know guys who've done this. I know priests and seminaries who've done this where they will shave their head, but only in a way that basically mimics male pattern baldness. <laughs> so they'll shave the top middle of their head and leave the rest at a natural length. And that is a mortification because people so, will come up to them like, dude, you've lost your hair. You got to just, you know, shave the whole thing, you know, take it down. <laughs> this, this looks terrible. And they just have to nod and thank them. And, you know, that's so I, a mortification. I, I shave my head down to with one on the razor but i do it for one reason because 
I'm still new to town and I have not yet found a place to go get a haircut. And so it's just, and honestly, it's just easier. It's easier to get out of bed. It's easier to, I did this in the seminary all the time because getting the chapel for 630 was hard. And so just shave the head, pump, you know, stumble out of bed, get dressed and go to chapel and stumble in for the invitatory. So um, I do it for that reason. It's just, it is literally out of laziness and ease of life. So, okay. Since it's my podcast, uh, sorry, our podcast, our podcast. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> mea culpa, yeah. mea culpa. Listen, you're 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 being taken hostage right now, apparently, Father Anthony. So, I know. Um, you know. Anyways, uh, I'm going to insert my own canonical emergency. Okay, please. Uh, I came across this problem when I was researching um, the question of mortal sin and receiving sacraments. Um, and I was kind of, I realized for a second, as I was reading canon law, it says that before receiving the Eucharist, one has to confess grave sin. Having canon lawyer friends around me has made me question whenever a term is used in a, in a non-usual way. And I was like, wait, grave sin? But grave is different than mortal. Mortal has three conditions. Grave just means the seriousness of the act. And it got me going down a rabbit hole that made me actually question how I've understood the the canonical approach, at least to the confession of serious sin. Um, Because I've always been, and I think it's, again, I don't think there's any ill will here. We're often taught just... It's around mortal sin. You have to confess mortal sin. Mortal sin has three conditions, right? Free knowledge, the gravity of of matter, and um, free will. But grave is just one of those categories. And then you go to the catechism, and they kind of (laughs) flip-flop. They use both. And I'm like, you can tell that it was not properly edited. (laughs) What's the deal? AP2 there? Okay, fair enough. What's what's, Will and Ratzinger? Who put it together? Really? Yeah. I mean, it. Listen, she needed catech- an editor. The catechism we, we, we can was all written. Just say we, that listen, now. Well, let's just remember though, the catechism was written in French, so really, it's always the French's fault. Yeah, that is true. So, well, actually, the language that something is written in is part of the part of the answer to your implied question, which is right. why does the code say grave sin instead of mortal sin? Right. Um, a couple of reasons. The first and most important is the reason why until very recently and now they you know they they sort of flip-flop back and forth and they still kind of do a head fake but in the church law is always promulgated in one language and one language only and that is latin Mm -hmm. um and even the even the code of canons for the eastern churches Hmm. their code which applies to all of the eastern churches even though they all have their own proper law underneath that even the eastern code is in latin Hmm. Um, and the reason why all law in the church is in latin and is supposed to be promulgated in latin is so there is no confusion of language and terms and interpretation across the entire church everybody knows what the words mean Hmm. and grave is a term in law which appears a lot throughout the code whether it's grave cause grave sin grave reasons um, you know, all of these things. And so there is an acquired um, jurisprudential, but also just a common legal understanding of what gravity means. 
so there's that so if you said mortal sin then you, you as you said you're opening up a whole new box and you will do what does the code mean mortal in the same way that it's traditionally meant theologically is it is this to say mortal sin are we saying a taxative list of just the you know the commonly understood seven deadly sins is that what we mean you know it opens up a whole bunch of other things and so to, for the church to say no grave conscious of grave sin so I mean, you know, you said there are three criteria. One of which is you have to be aware of it. But I mean, that it says in the code, conscious of grave sin. So if you like, it's already meeting okay. two out of the three, That's um, because you're you're acknowledging the gravity of the matter and the fact that the person has to be awareness of it. You can't confess a sin of which you are unaware. Right. You know, there's it's just a, a logical rationale there. But the, I mean, the answer to your question is why does the why does the code say grave? Is because grave is first of all a law a word that all lawyers understand in the church or should understand. But also, it's helpful if someone flips open the code and they see that they they at least understand hopefully what the church wants them to understand from this, which is to say, well, are you conscious of a grave sin? Well, I don't know what a grave sin is, but I can think of this that feels pretty grave. Well, then go to confession. You know, it encourages the right kind of action because really good law, all law in the church is ordered obviously to the salvation of souls and good law should be a light along that path. And so if it illuminates to people their reality by making them have, for example, a, a kind of examination of conscience, then that's a very good thing. So my worry about this, and even a worry about talking about it on our podcast, which has <laughs> billions of listeners, is that and billions and billions of listeners. Uh, it was a little rock reference. Come on, I, okay, I'm, 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 okay. Come you on, settle down, settle down with your references and inside jokes there. Okay, so uh, the worry that I have is that people listening to this who uh, struggle with uh, habitual sin. Mm -hmm. are going to lose their dang minds over this. Um, and one of the things that sometimes um, I counsel people who are, and this is only if they are a regular confessee or a, a directee, um, working with them, uh, one of the things to fight scrupulosity, because a lot of times these habits and scrupulosity go together, um, is to get them to stop going to confession every like two, three days. Uh, and this is my worry about that. If you're struggling right. with habitual sin, uh, and the habitual sin is grave matter, um, whether or not the, the the will is how damaged the will is through habit, like what then? Well, you're asking a lawyer for a pastoral response, so yeah. I I hope you understand you're going to get what you get here. Um, I am. <laughs> okay. I am not I'll a, just I'll just give a pastoral response after that's you're fine. done. I, I yeah. Full souls. disclosure: I am not a cleric. I am not a pastor. <laughs> pastoral concerns are not my department. And, and 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 we and again, and theology is also greater than canon law. Well, no, it's theology is you, the fundamental you science. You you everyone needs a theology degree to study canon law. Nobody needs a canon law degree to study theology. You have to study the basics before you. Can move on to the higher things mm. um but anyway in answer to your question father anthony i i would i would offer two things first of all um there's nothing in the discipline of the church or indeed in the vast majority of the church's lived tradition that suggests you need to be receiving communion all that often mm -hmm. i think we have adopted a a sort of universal mentality of, well, you go to Mass to get communion rather than understanding that going to Mass is its own good discipline in itself. And there is nothing wrong. Indeed, there is much praiseworthy about going to Mass for the purposes of participating in the liturgy, which doesn't have to involve receiving communion. 
Um, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's a very good discipline to have, I think. Um, the law is the law. If you are conscious of grave sin, you should go to confession before receiving communion. Now, no one is bound to the impossible. So if you are in a situation where, for example, you can only receive communion by going to mass at a particular time in a particular place, which is on a very set schedule, and there is simply no opportunity to go to confession beforehand and to abstain from receiving communion would deprive you of the Eucharist for an inordinate period of time, and you've been given pastoral direction by your confessor another way, and you know, and you're making an act of contrition and all that stuff. You know, the, there can be gray areas in there. And again, it's not the job of a lawyer to insert himself into the pastoral relationship of a priest and and a member of their flock. Um, but I would say the law is the law, and at least in the vast majority of cases, I can immediately conceive of the two don't have to be intention that there's nothing wrong with saying, yes, I'm conscious of grave sin and I shouldn't receive communion, but that doesn't mean you stay away from church. Yeah. It doesn't mean you stay away from mass. And it certainly doesn't mean you stay away from prayer or stay away from God. Yeah, I think that's a good point because a lot of times the difficulty with um, those kinds of sins is that we end up living our lives entirely based around those sins mm -hmm. and we allow ourselves uh, to pray to attend mass, whether or not we've committed a particular sin. Uh, so I think that's that's a dangerous um, way of thinking as well. Uh, and I'll just, I, I think your response was very fair and good, uh, but I'll just add that, hey, guys, don't receive your personal uh, spiritual instruction from a podcast. Make sure you're seeing yeah. a pastor or another holy person. So yeah, so, okay. So this is all very interesting to me. This actually, got, this question got me going down a really deep rabbit hole um, because I thought it was, interesting and, and actually jd had brought up this point too that you know gravity is something law can judge right while mm -hmm. subjective conditions is not exactly however the pastor or the priest celebrating the sacrament is kind of given powers to help judge that even but although even myself listen we're a mystery to ourselves and like i always say like like i say to people who sometimes struggle with habitual sin you know go as as frequently as allowed when you, if you've given into the sin to confession is usually my instruction again depending on the person and um and and i find that it's often not abused to be more than once a week um so what happens then is i say listen you may listen because like the catechism for example let's talk like the, the normal one i think that a priest will encounter a lot is around sins of impurity even the catechism gives direction around how the severity of the sin may be lessened due to habit and lack of freedom, et cetera, right? But I always say, like, listen, so th yes, that's true. But in the end, you don't even know yourself, your freedom. So that's, there's nothing wrong with bringing, bringing it to confession frequently. The, ca the code, of, to my knowledge, also, as you had kind of alluded to here, Ed, is, is it allows for the idea that if for grave reasons, and it might be the grave reason might be, I don't know, like you're living with your parents and if you don't go to communion, you're going to be getting a, a well, this is you're, you're going to be like, you're going to be like, your parents are going to be going out. What did you do? What'd you do? Exactly. Why'd you receive communion? I always say, have a little drink of orange juice. Say, I just, I didn't fast mom and dad. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> you know? this is a, this is a real thing. And it's something that in the yeah. legal mindset of the church is a huge thing, which is no one can be compelled to make a public manifestation of conscience, which is you're not exactly. required to out yourself as a grave sinner or being in a state of grave sin. And this is one of the reasons why I think it's very, um, problematic, can be very problematic that we have, as, as I think um, 
a religious people adopted a sort of inverted relationship to the sacraments where we think it's totally normal to go to communion every week or more often than every week, but abnormal to go to confession more often than once a month, for example. Yeah. Yeah. And mm -hmm. it it's not that it's not to say that people shouldn't go to mass daily and receive daily if they're so disposed. And it's not to say that people need to be going to confession every day or anything like that. But just to say that we've, we, we've oddly pushed one sacrament into a, well, you don't have to do that that often. I mean, it's good and it's a sacrament. You should do it, but you don't have to, you know, you don't have to be at it all the time. And yet the other one, we seem to think, well, more is better. And yeah. there's a healthy balance for both. But for some reason, we, we seem to, the I pendulum know. seems to have swung in the opposite direction for, for yeah. either side. Yeah. I also think, you know, sometimes with either habitual sin or just whatever kind of sin, uh, the fact that we go to communion on Sundays, it almost allows us to live a double life in a certain sense, that we can ignore our sinfulness because everything is normal on Sundays. And I think there could be something, um, very healing and to help convert the heart uh, to like abstain from communion when you're struggling with a particular sin. Mm -hmm. And first of all, you're receiving a whole bunch of graces just by being at mass. And we, we, we brush over that a lot. Uh, but also having the desire deepened in your heart to receive the Eucharist can help impel you towards more virtue, toward yeah. actually fighting the sin instead of kind of living with it and being comfortable with it. Um, and, and you're also suffering with the others who have to because of maybe the, with the condition of life they're in, like maybe yeah, a, yeah. a couple whose marriage is not, um, you know, regularized yet, uh, they have to abstain for communion. So then you're suffering with them, which is a good in the church as well. And it actually that suffering builds up the bond of of communion as well. Mm -hmm. And I think, and I, this is the thing, like I, I say this because I recognize like people wait, so wait, even regardless of my subjective condition, like again, this is why we say, and I think Father Anthony was right to say, you know, that's why if you have a spiritual director or your pastor or your priest you go to, they're the ones who hearing the specifics. We we are just talking in generalities here. And and again, priests have jurisdiction over sacraments in their local territory for this reason. They're trained for this reason to help guide you through that. They're the ones to help you. We're just kind of talking on this on a bit more theoretical level. But I just thought it was like a very interesting question because yeah. I was like, I just always thought mortal sin. And I was like, whoa, whoa, grave? Whoa, that's a uh, that's a. And so I just say it more as a, it's something I'm still thinking over. And like, how do you educate people in this in a way that doesn't freak them out? Because mm -hmm. <laughs> you, you don't want to freak people out. But also, like, at the same time, if it's, if, if it draws more people to going to confession more frequently, that's not a bad thing either, you know? Yeah. Well, but and I think there's a question of a, um, a healthy understanding of who we are as a people as well to be had here, which is if everyone goes to communion every Sunday and nobody goes to confession more than once or twice a year, we're giving a false impression of ourselves as yep. a people, as basically sinless. You know, we're all yep. you know we're all fine, and, and that's not true. We're all terrible sinners. Um, you know, if if there is a giant mass of people in the church who avoid grave sin month to month or six months to six months, God love them. I'd like to know how they do it, please. What is their secret? Um, but if we have um, a situation in a parish where it's totally normal for a quarter, a third, two thirds of the assembly on any given Sunday or any given daily mass, not to receive communion because they haven't had the chance to go to confession in a while, then that creates, I think, a healthy understanding of the right ordering of the sacraments. That it's like, no, we don't, the presumption is not that Jesus is on tap. 
Yeah. That, you know, we, you approach the altar with, with a certain amount of intentionality that you, you know, it's, this is one of the reasons why we retain the idea of a, you know, at an hour, it's, it's a notional fast at this point. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that, you know, mass isn't something that starts when you walk in the door of the church, that your preparation for it begins in advance. You are preparing yourself to get there. And this is part of that preparation. Do it here. Do what the real problem is. This is the real problem. Everyone lining up for communion. And, mm -hmm. and going in an orderly fashion. Mm -hmm. There, mm -hmm. that's the problem. That is the real culprit. Because mm -hmm. then you no. I mean, well, actually, I I, I, I say that well, the thing is, the orderly line to go to communion is a problem. But I mean, the yeah. you are at that point, you're diagnosing a symptom, not the underlying I know. condition. I know. The real that's why I'm saying it's like half. It's half yeah. tongue in cheek. Because the problem the, is pews. <laughs> that's the problem. And lack of root screens. Yeah, I mean, if like you, no. <laughs> if, you, if you've got pews are a Protestant innovation, and you know the entire purpose of pews in churches is so that you can charge pew rents. They're you know it's a terrible idea. They should all be taken Wait, out. We can charge rent. That's why they're invented. You can't. Yeah. It's wrong. But pews are also <laughs> wrong. Oh, all right. Do I, I, okay, we got to stop beating up this. We we have more canonical questions. Let's go to canonical exhortations. Oh well, I don't know. If I don't know. Wait, 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 wait. Pastoral is, council, pastoral council. No, pastoral council. Pastoral and pastoral council is canonically established. So yes, yes. Pastoral, pastoral council. council. Thank you. Uh, and now it's time for pastoral council, where the laity are empowered to say words. Oh yippee! Opinions. Uh, so we have we got we got a lot of email requests and stuff around questions around annulments and marriages and the church and stuff like that. And I was like, wait, we, we know a canon lawyer, and as you can tell, we've been talking canon law already. And uh, I was like, everybody hey, should know at least one. Yeah, and, and I'll hey, listen, knowing you guys has helped me love canon law a lot more. It just I, canon I, law is lovable. I, this I, is something I, Benedict said to seminarians all the time: is that they should not just understand canon but learn to love it because yeah it is the it is in many ways it's the discipline of yeah. the church not just a sort of physical but it's like the discipline of mind it is yeah. the systematizing and really a way of life really if you like the way i've come to understand it more and more and i want to kind of do this one day in my parish it's like is like just help educate them and why canon law is important because well, for me it's it's really the pastoral ordering of life it's and it's and it really and really Canon law, more than anything else, is probably one of the greatest fruits of the Second Vatican Council and instantiates its theology and, and pastoral practice. Mm -hmm. It really is the pastoral action. It is the pastoral plan of a parish. It lays it all out for you for a diocese, for a parish, etc. It, it's really rich. It, and you, but you also look at it, you're like, you feel a little overwhelmed sometimes. You're like, wait, wait I got to do all of that? <laughs> like when it talks about like the priest should go visit all the families, I'm like, how? I got 500 families and I'm one man. <laughs> it's like, and you know, so but, but it, it's really cool. But um, I think I think it's good to talk a bit about annulments, especially because I think they're quite often misunderstood. Mm -hmm. I know, I know I get a lot of questions around it sometimes around like, was the status of children in an annulled marriage, et cetera. And I thought, hey, you know, Ed, what is, give us annulment 101. Um, well, like, why, why, why are, what, well, I guess maybe I guess the question starts, why are, why are they allowable? Like, is this not just Catholic divorce? You know, no, that's your right. This is, yeah. So this is the common misguided. I mean, to be honest, one of the, um, the worst things uh, that contributes to the concept of, um, declarations of marriage nullity as 
um, Catholic divorce is even saying annulments that you know the church will give you an annulment and it's like yeah. that 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 is a misunderstanding of the dynamics of the whole thing the church doesn't annul your marriage you know the the outside of some very very weird and wacky reserved cases that we call the petrine and pauline privilege which we are absolutely not going to talk about um <laughs> but the church doesn't annul your marriage the church basically conducts a forensic examination of the circumstances of your marriage and says well this was null from the beginning that something that was supposed to happen didn't happen that it's not that the church looks and it goes yeah you know what you guys you make a good point you shouldn't be married anymore we're we're going to call it a day for you that's not that that and this is often why you get a lot of people confused by results uh, that come out of marriage tribunals to say well you know but Bill was such a jerk. Look at all of these things that he did. And he clearly has an intention against the good of his spouse because he did all of this stuff once they were married. And, you know, after, you know, they had two kids and then he, you know, got a vasectomy and said, I'm never having another kid. That's an intention against children. It's like, well, that may all be true, but that's part of the lived reality of the marriage. The church, when it's talking about these things, is only concerned about the actual exchange of consent at the wedding mm -hmm. because that's what makes marriage that the church says the code says the consent of the parties legitimately manifested by persons qualified by law makes marriage that's it it's the exchange of consent that's all the church is looking at in this is was that consent effective and so i think a lot of people have a reasonable expectation that what the church is talking about is the life of the couples. And yeah, it's true. You can often use the the life of the couple together to infer some things about mm. someone's state of mind when they got married. Um, but it's only ever useful and it's only ever applicable as, as a canonical thing if it is a reflection of a state of mind at a particular moment, which is that moment of the exchange of consent. So if you're looking for an annulment 101 thing, it's that, which is the first thing to understand is it's all about the exchange of consent. Nothing else matters. And there's also, I mean, there's also the distinction between some marriages are deemed by the church to be null and some are invalid. And the two are not. So yeah, what's the difference? Well, so basically the best way of understanding this, and this is, I'm being a little fast and loose, but this is the most accessible way of putting it is null means everybody tried but something went wrong <laughs> invalid means you couldn't do it to begin with mm -hmm. um so I, yeah okay. no means you didn't invalid means you couldn't Wait, so invalid is that around the that's why we asked certain questions around the ability to have children and stuff like that before marriage so that yeah. if that stuff wasn't um if, if that wasn't made known then from the beginning, it was invalid because they didn't meet the certain qualifications. Well, but yeah, but yeah, I don't the know. The ability to yeah. have children. Well, so, sorry. I mean, here again, this well, is. Another, I know, I know, but this is. Yeah, I know. This is this I is know. another common misconception: is that people think, well, if you can't have children, you can't get married, which is right. not nuts. True. That's just not. That, uh, it's just not the case. But again, this is this is part of us having a flawed common understanding even in our own church about what the church teaches about marriage and the good of children and the good of the spouses and things like that. What the church teaches is if you are antecedent and perpetually impotent exactly you can't get married right because marriage is fundamentally a sexual partnership so if you are physically incapable of partaking in a sexual partnership in the natural way then you it's not that the church says you're forbidden from getting married it's saying well what you're doing isn't marriage um right. 
but that's different from the, right. the actual yeah, ability sorry. of being yes. fertile and being able to have right. children, which you know is right. is in God's hands and no one else's. Right. So I was. Is the, I get. Or sorry, Anthony, you have a question. Sorry, I do have questions. I, so I questions. I'm not sure if this is particular or universal law, but in my diocese, I believe you have to have a divorce before they will take you into the annulment process. Yeah, same and here. That strikes me as odd, and I don't know if you know the reasoning behind that, and because it also kind of in my mind it does kind of adds that feeling of catholic divorce once you get your real divorce then you can get the catholic divorce it feels like right um so no that's not a question of universal law but a lot of dioceses have that in place as a policy and i hope that in the blessed diocese of pittsburgh and in most other places that have similar policies this is a soft policy not a hard policy um and i'll explain why uh in a sec, but what the Universal Code actually says is that before a canonical process for assessing nullity of marriage begins, you're supposed to take every possible step to ensure that the relationship has truly irrevocably broken down, that there's no hope of saving the union. And so what a lot of dioceses will do is they say, well, if they aren't civilly divorced, how can we be sure that they, there isn't a possibility of reconciliation here? We don't want to start down the road of making a decree of nullity if there's a chance to save the marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that, that's a good place to start. I mean, again, the reason I say I hope that that's a soft policy is because there are situations where, for example, um, it might not be possible or even proper for there to be a civil divorce because there could be all sorts of legal considerations for the children and and things like that that might say no we we are looking to establish the freedom of the parties and this was never a sacramental marriage or a marriage that was valid in the eyes of the church or or whatever um but there are compelling reasons why a civil divorce hasn't been presented um, so again, I hope that's soft policy, but that's the rationale between um, a lot of dioceses saying you have to have a civil divorce first. It's just, it's just a lot of places' way of saying shorthand. Well, we want to be absolutely sure you're not going to reconcile later because that you know is obviously awkward if we've <laughs> gone to all this and <laughs> going to get back, which does happen. I I know couples who have um, been divorced, petitioned the church for um, declaration of nullity, got one, and then ended up getting remarried mm-hmm. down the line. I know for my diocese, wow. for anyone, I think pretty much anyone who gets a declaration of nullity before they get married again in the Catholic Church, I have to write them a letter. Like there's a the the, the offices will give me this thing saying, "Hey, they got this annulment. You have to be absolutely sure they're ready to get married again." Yeah, you can. That. I have as a I have as a judge. I don't want to say often, um, but on many occasions imposed what we call a vetitum or a monitum, which is either basically a prohibition or a a watch out provision in the sentence saying one or both parties is not to be married in the church again until or unless, for example, their pastor has met with them properly and gone through and make sure that whatever went wrong last time isn't going to go wrong again this time. And mm-hmm. yeah, no, that is, yeah, that is I, definitely part of the process. I, I had a... I had a... I had a wedding once and I talked to our canon lawyer about it because I was, I was honestly hesitant about this couple getting married. Um, and he said, well, we went through it. He goes, okay, I know it's going to be hard and you're probably not wrong. However, um, you can't really stop them from doing it, but you can put, I put a letter in their file saying in case of annulment. Mm-hmm. You do get <laughs> right? Because you get the, because it's like you, in the end, again, 
there are rights to sacraments and there are. If, I mean, and if, if unless you can find, and it's really not my place to like, I can delay and stuff. I really can't say no. It's hard mm. to say no. It's very hard to say. I mean, even if, even if a tribunal says we're imposing a veditum on person X, say they are not to be married in the church again, unless and until they've satisfied whatever criteria, um, that's not an invalidating clause. <laughs> you know, the, mm. even the church doesn't have the power to sort of preemptively invalidate a marriage on right. a on an individual basis um just because they think it's a good idea that the the natural law right to marriage it's not just a question of a christian's right to the sacraments but there's a human right in the proper sense according to the natural law according to the created order that god has made there is a natural law right to marriage that it's not really for anyone to stop Right. to people who want to get married who are properly disposed and qualified by law, that they have a right to marriage, which is why, for example, during the pandemic, a lot of canon lawyers were getting phone calls when the churches were all closed. And in some dioceses said, we are doing no sacraments whatsoever at all. And you know it's going to be a year or 18 months. And couples were saying, you know, can we... We want to get married. Are, can the church <laughs> stop us from getting married for a year and a half? Nope. And the answer is no. <laughs> Get two witnesses and go nuts, kids, because you know the church can. <laughs> the, you are not bound to the impossible, and the church exactly. cannot bar you access to a natural law right indefinitely. And a uh, question about that, because things have gone a little crazy because of the pandemic and things. And one of the things that uh, has been happening a lot are uh, validations, and mm -hmm. I think they began to get a little bit more advertised, at least on my uh, maybe on my diocesan website or just in general um, that. Uh, if for some reason the party who wanted to get married still needed to get married but couldn't do it in the church, they could later be validated. I'm going to follow up questions to this, but uh, what is a validation and how is that different from, uh, if I'm using the right word, uh, a sanation of marriage? Okay. Oh, um, actually, I was once at a dinner with two judges of from the Roman Rota which is, if you like, the church's sort of supreme appeal court in Rome, which handles all of the marriage cases at this at the highest appellate level. And I once asked them, it was with a couple of other guys, we were canon law students at the time, we asked them, what's the difference between a radical sanation and a convalidation post-dated? And they got into a fight at the table, yep. <laughs> arguing, the yep. difference is obvious and very important. In other words, there is no difference. It's the same thing. And so so I, the, the answer to your final question is basically, let's just say it's open to different judicial yeah. interpretation. Yeah. Um, but what the church can do is if there is, if you like, a, a defective form um, or even a lack of form in some cases, where basically everything is possible. It goes back to null versus invalid. It's not that you couldn't, it's that you didn't, or you didn't do it quite right, or something was missing. And so if something that's not a non-essential, but for example, purely disciplinary thing has rendered your marriage not contracted under the church's law, the church can say, well, no, we can we can radically sinate it, go back in time and fix at the root um, the thing that was impeding the validity of this marriage from the beginning and basically post-date the validity and say this has all been fine up until now because everything that's super important and necessary for a valid marriage, so to speak, and again, I'm using the term valid a little bit fast and loose here, um, but for example, it wasn't something that couldn't be dispensed. Mm -hmm. um, it was something that right. could be dispensed and wasn't, and the church is basically post-dating the dispensation, if you like, yeah. and saying the church recognizes as valid everything that came before 
up until that point. You know, you can't do that with some things if you're, you know, well, I was about to say brother and sister, but there's a very interesting case under Paul the Sixth that we, we don't have to go into. I, but, you can't, you can't, if, you, if you have someone with a previous bond and yeah. they're in a second marriage, you can't do a renation until because the first bond still needs to be annulled if if it will be, and mm -hmm. then you have to do a convalidation. You yeah, can't, exactly. The, right, and that's that. That's just well. Necessary. But again, this is it's yeah. a question of can you? It, you yeah. cannot get married. It's not that the church says you have to jump through these hoops to get married. But if you are married to someone already, you cannot get married. It's not mm -hmm. possible. Exactly. 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 Yeah. So because like this is the, I because like actually I use sanation quite often. Um, uh, again, I think that's just the jurisprudence in this diocese. I know other dioceses where it's not. Convalidation is the thing. I like sanation for the reason, especially, I think it's a, because here's the well, thing. This is the thing. This is the quick thing. Can law is actually quite pastoral. If you use the word oh, pastoral yes. in the proper sense as yes. dealing with particular situations and theologically grounded, right? The, that's a good understanding of pastoral. And, and so what it does is it says, actually, yeah, you guys have a good marriage here. And the church recognizes the day that you celebrate your anniversary on and everything, like, great. We bless that. And it's now recognized in the church now. We do the the paperwork to get it done, and it's not hard. And it and it really actually makes them quite happy because um, they think they have to go through this way com more complicated process. And so when I have when I have someone who's done a marriage outside the church, lack of form or something like that, we do I I do my best if I can to do a sanation. Yeah. yeah. So I think I think in my diocese we lead toward lean towards validations, and that can be tricky because you have to let the person know the church considers this an act of marriage. Exactly. Uh, that like this is when you're That's getting married yeah and, and, and so this is hard. you can have <laughs> so convalidation in the code occurs at the moment of the granting of the favor that is you know you're fixing the thing that went wrong and retroactivity is understood to the extent to extend to the moment of the celebration of the marriage unless they decide something else so you can be retroactive hmm. but i mean also a lot of times what will play into this um is a question of whether or not there's a new act of the will hmm. or there needs to be or there can be so that's a key thing. It's just saying there's nothing wrong with the the will of the parties at the moment the original attempt at marriage was made. But for example, sometimes you'll have, um, say, a Catholic will marry someone who's not a Catholic or not even a Christian or whatever, and they don't get the proper permissions and everything, and their marriage is, is invalid in the sense that they have not followed canonical form. They got married in a country club somewhere or on a beach or whatever, and there was no priest, and it was done at a courthouse and all that. And they want to get right with the church and they want the church to recognize their marriage. They want to get all of the things that they should have gotten permission for or dispense prior, you know, uh, all in line. And a lot of times people say, well, why not just exchange consent properly in the canonical context? You know, it doesn't have to be a big deal. You can just, yeah. you know, do it in 10 minutes after mass yeah. one Sunday or whatever. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But a lot of times the non-Catholic party will say, I'm not doing that. I, I got married 10 years ago and I don't need to get married again. And, you know, I don't care about what your church's crazy rules are or whatever. And in that case, the church will say, well, okay, let's look at this. And if the consent it basically is perduring for that party, there doesn't need to be a new act of the will here. We can then senate the original act of the will for the things that were lacking. Whereas oftentimes if you get convalidation, what will happen is the couple will just make a new act of the will and say, we understand that what came before was not marriage because we didn't do whatever it was. And now we are, and it's, you know, it, it is a new thing. And yeah, but again, <laughs> the, the line between when something is um, convalidated with retroactive effect and when something is radically senated, I've seen the, yeah, very highfalutin judges in the, in the church fight over that. Isn't this just Phariseeism? No. 
Okay, yeah, yeah. Let me, let me phrase it. Ministry please, of Truth. please. Yes, Wait, I, know, I, I agree. Different way. Yes. This is. I, I like where Father Harrison is going with this because after talking about all this, there's a big picture question that comes up. I think in a lot of people's minds is like, isn't this overly complicated? Why does the church have to do things this way? Why do we have all these rules and things? Like, what's what? What is being protected here? What is the deal with hmm. all this stuff? Isn't isn't it complicated and overly complicated? Is a simple question answer. Says yes, it is. But whose fault is that? People. <laughs> people are fault. complicated. People are complicated. If people would just live simple lives, we wouldn't need most of this stuff. <laughs> every new law, every complication in the law is a result of a question being raised that the law didn't have an answer to, and so we had to change the law to accommodate for it. I mean, you know, is this Phariseeism is is something that people get asked a lot when you're in canon law? And the best answer I can give them to is Pope Francis doesn't think so. If every year at the opening of the of the church's judicial year, Pope Francis gives an address to the Roman Rota, sort of outlining his, if you like. Yeah, but that's just written by some other guy that he just reads out. Mm, <laughs> I don't. I don't think it often is in Francis's case. Okay. Um, but what just, he's yeah. No, but what he's been very clear on, and he was uh, the last one he gave, is he likes to underscore that um, marriage tribunals, the work of marriage tribunals particularly, is a ministry of truth. That that's what it's for is is a service to the people of god enlightening the truth of their situation that people are right in many of these cases to have a question about their status and they have a right to an answer now what pope francis always says when he's talking to the roman road is these people have a right to an answer not a right to the answer they want mm -hmm. that no you know this is something else it's like, well i jumped through all the hoops and i you know i wrote a check for 500 dollars to you know contribute to the cost of the process and, you know why where's my annulment it's like that's not what the church offers you these the aren't is, indulgences as people that's what you pay for you pay exactly. for indulgence that you know what the what the church is offering here is i mean this is about the salvation of souls fundamentally you know whether a person is living in a valid or invalid marital union is a question of to go back to what we're talking about the grave or more even mortal sin in some cases mm -hmm. and people have a right to know the truth of their situation and the church has an obligation to serve that right and to say yeah you've got questions about this and it's the church's responsibility to answer them and you know is it a is it a complicated legal process in in some cases to get to that answer yeah but life is messy and life mm -hmm. is complicated and the church takes it very seriously and the legal complications are not about playing dress up yeah they you know it is about the church saying look the the process if the process can seem long-winded and legalistic that's because every sort of turn in the process that seems, you know, like it's a pain and, you know, red tape or whatever, this is about protecting someone's right. This is about protecting the right of one of the parties who maybe doesn't think their marriage is invalid or null and doesn't like that their spouse has filed for uh, annulment and they have a right to be heard and to say, no, I'm fighting for my marriage. I was there on our wedding day and we meant what we said. And yeah, things were a mess afterwards but it doesn't change the reality of what happened on our wedding day you know that that's what this is about yeah i think it's also a fundamental misunderstanding of what the church is and what she can do and what she does that she's a steward of these sacraments she doesn't get to make them up and mm -hmm. that sacramental reality is a reality and so the reason why we're so careful around it is because these things either are or they're not and we can't make the, if they are, we can't make them not. And if they're not, we can't make them are. <laughs> we have to like be. Yeah. You know, and well, and, and here's the part that is kind of fun is um, not fun, but ironic. Um, it's not just a sacramental reality because yeah. marriage is a natural law creation and it is 
absolutely raised to the dignity of a sacrament when it's between two baptized. But I've judged annulment cases that are between two pagans, between two totally unbaptized people. Mm -hmm. Because what will happen is someone will come and I want to get married to this person. They're not a Catholic, um, but it's fine. They were married before, but they got a divorce, but it's fine. They're not Catholic. So they didn't have a sacramental marriage. It's like, well, that's still a binding marriage. The yeah, church exactly. doesn't have two kinds of marriage real marriage, which is a sacrament, and other people's marriages, which is just kind of a whatever. Well, and here's no. the thing. As the, as the baptized person marrying the non-baptized, it's actually still just a natural marriage. It is still just a natural marriage, but the church says there's no, there aren't two kinds exactly, of marriages, exactly. breakable and unbreakable. That There is marriage. Yeah. Now, you, you have access to the sacramental economy when you're a Christian couple, which is a yeah. unquestionably of great help and support to your marital life together. Baptized yeah, no, I'm kidding. Don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. Please don't do that. Um, please, but please, yeah, please. <laughs> don't. your marriage is not more valid by yeah. virtue of it being a sacrament. Exactly. So, because this is so, here's the thing. Like, I, I've actually come to really love the church's marriage laws. I mean, we don't we as I'm sure you're fully aware, Ed, we do not get a whole lot of can law in seminary. I had a whole two classes and a class of jurisdiction. Um, and it's funny because I'm not a detailed oriented person at all. However my brain loves canon law stuff because there's all sorts of whole things to figure out. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's a fun thing. And I've really come to appreciate it. So, cause like what I've done now, I've really internalized the law. So that when, when I have people ask, like I last week, some, or a couple weeks ago, someone emailed me about wanting to get married in June. I, they said, okay, I'm marrying this person. Uh, they're, uh, they're not baptized or anything. And they were, they, this person was later on in their age. And I said, okay, so usually they're marrying someone later on in their age, which means they may have that other person may have a past. So I said, um, okay, you're Catholic. Did you have a previous marriage? No. Okay. Did he? Yes. Oh, okay. Um, the person he married was that person a Catholic? And they, they turned out to be yes. I said, and then they get married in the church. And he said, no. I said, oh, well, this is actually very easy to fix. <laughs> Lack of form. Um, you know, it's, and it's, and when you do that for people, what you're doing well, as a priest is not, well, not to nitpick, Father. I but know, if sorry. a non-Catholic marries a Catholic, not in a church, what you're going for there isn't so much lack of form, but probably a lack of a dispensation of disparity of cult, because you need the permission of the church to but marry a non-baptized yes. yeah, person. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is why I have judicial vicars. We have judicial vicars. They'll they'll point us in the right. But I just but still, like regardless, their steps were not taken. For the marriage to happen and and when you work through people through this you start they're very happy because it's not it is complicated and they don't know how to navigate it so as priests it's not really our job it, it, this is why it is a duty of us to really understand the law as best as we can because we can help when you can navigate and, and literally hold their hand through it they're actually very happy I, I had a case in my last parish it was a little complicated. And the person told me they went to three priests and they said, Oh no, you can't do anything about it. And I asked them questions and I said, well, based on your scenario, there's three possible directions we can go. We want to, and we want to go according to these things first. The first one being an annulment process. If your spouse is open to it. And I talked to them about it and I, and they went to coffee and we got to know the person. And then they're like, yes, I want to do the process. And we were able to heal the marriage. And like this person was just so happy, but it's because I asked, I asked the right questions of mm -hmm. them. To help get them started in the process and so if there are i know there are priests who listen to the podcast i just want to encourage them like this stuff is actually really good and it's there for the good of the souls and and it's really worth understanding better and better over time yeah yeah all right fellas yeah. uh indiana is awake 
and I think my uh, grandma's coming home soon. So there's just there's going to be noise and we've been going a little long. So this is the part where we say nice things about the pillar. And then and, uh, <laughs> we didn't know we were going to do that. Oh, yeah, oh, absolutely. We're going to do that. And we're going to do that because we actually really appreciate what you guys do. Uh, yeah. So uh, I have been subscribed to the pillar since its inception. I listen to you guys, the pillar podcast. Um, and oh, producer Nick, you're allowed to break in. Say say hi, producer Nick. What up? <laughs> Hello, so, Nick. Pleasure is producer always. Nick has come to take his child, I assume. Yes. <laughs> Bring him back. Anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, as far as uh, Catholic news, you guys are the first ones I turn to. Uh, mm-hmm. Your discussions on your podcast, I find entertaining and informative on various topics. And it's also neat to get like the kind of stories and perspective uh, behind the articles you guys write. Uh, I, as a Catholic, I think this is one of the best things that I support, uh, other than uh, the sisters, uh, the daughters of St. Paul. So big fan of the pillar, big fan of you, Ed and JD. And so that, that's yeah. my plug for the pillar. Okay, and I'll, 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 I'll heap it on there a bit. But yeah. uh, well, no, it's just I, I too have, and I think it's just this is one of the nice little things of these are one of the little fruits of Twitter where we've gotten to know each other through Twitter and have become IRL friends, which is always a great gift and blessing in the life of the church. And um, I too have been there since the beginning and support them financially. And I encourage people to subscribe. It's listen, it's, it's, it's well, the way Starbucks coffees are going now, it's one and a half Starbucks coffees a month. If you support it, 10 bucks a month, you know, like, and it's really, I, it's my, it's my first source too. I look forward to the newsletters every week. Uh, I look forward to the reporting. I look forward to the podcast. And you guys really do really interesting things. You're not just doing all these news stories. You're doing positive news stories. You're doing book reviews. You're doing um, interest stories that we don't always think about. You're doing stories around the st- statistics to tell us about the the, the demographics and, and the future of the church. This is stuff no one else is doing. And you're doing it, and you're doing it from the heart of the church. right? We all know that there's a lot of news agencies out there that have different political bends. And... I mean, we all have we all have our biases in a way, but you guys really keep the church's communion at your heart and the respect and obedience to those in authority. To the you know, you're always doing it with with respect. If you have critiques or questions, it's always out of respect, which is I think the attitude we need to develop more in the church. So you guys are doing nothing but good work, and uh, we're just really grateful for you being out there. No, I I really appreciate that, guys. Thank you. I, yeah, you know, and so the, the okay, nice thing about us is we are JD and I are both canon lawyers and so that is kind of i mean that's what we have instead of an editorial slant we're not and it's because we canonical takes well yeah basically i mean that you know we 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 have very we've had very different career experiences working in the church as canon lawyers um but that's you know we instead of skewing whatever you want to call it liberal progressive conservative whatever um you know we have a we just know what the law of the church says, and we know what the processes of the church are supposed to look like. And so that's, you know, that's our way of, if you like, keeping ourselves honest and, and all of that. And it's been, you know, we're just over a year old now. And um, the fact that we have a second year is an immense blessing. And we are incredibly grateful to everyone, including you two, who who have been subscribers um, from early on. And we we really appreciate it. Our our families really appreciate it because, um, <laughs> you know, we, we have to pay rent and things. And yeah, I thank you so tell us tell the good people uh how they can subscribe uh it's very simple if you go to pillarcatholic.com hopefully you won't be able to rest your eye 
too far anywhere on the website without seeing a big red subscribe button, please do. We are, you know, one thing that we we sort of made a very self-conscious decision when we started was we're not a we're not a charity, literally or metaphorically. You know, we are we're two guys running a running a, a media business, we hope, and um, we want to grow it. But, you know, it's free to read and we want to keep it free to read because we do get really fabulous emails from, for example, um, convents of cloistered nuns saying, <laughs> we read the pillar and we can't afford the five bucks a month to subscribe, but we're praying for you. And we love that. And yeah. we wouldn't take their money you're even like, if they offered us. And you're like, I want your prayers. That's more yeah, valuable. Exactly. <laughs> Way more valuable than five bucks a month. You know, we wouldn't take your money if you offered it, but we'll take the prayers totally. But I mean, this is, you know, we 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 don't ask people for donations, but we do ask people to subscribe and to pay when they subscribe and if they can to pay more when they subscribe. And we just refer to it as we're basically running a newsstand with an honesty box. That, you know, if you can if you can pay for your copy please do if you can pay for five other people's copies then think of those lovely sisters in the cloister who are reading and you know that's that's what it's all for thanks ed all right guys thanks for listening please leave a review on itunes and tell your friends about the podcast tell your enemies too because jesus says we must love our enemies that goes for the pillar as well tell your friends and enemies about the pillar you can find me not getting ashes on ash wednesday you can find me at fr harrison on twitter and really yeah, go ahead. And you can find me at my desk, probably. <laughs> okay. Do you want to give out your Twitter or no? Uh, my Twitter is at Canon Lawyer or Canon Lawyer Ed, if you prefer. For all the best takes on your pet cat, follow Ed. <laughs> uh, contact the podcast and receive updates at ClericalPod on Twitter. <laughs> find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericalspeaking at gmail.com. If you have a theological emergency, please call this hotline, 412-912-5995. That's 412-912-7995. If you have an actual emergency, then don't call that number because we won't get to you for another few weeks. Peace. God bless. Well, there you go.